Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right. Thanks, Alex. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's been such a busy week in the world of letters. Um, For me, it involved a very, very nice thing. I interviewed the winner of last week's Bailey Gifford Prize, John Mm. Valent, uh, whose book Fireweather one which was about the 2016 uh fire in the petroleum community of uh Fort McMurray in Alberta Canada and it is such a fascinating and indeed unbelievably scary book about the um I suppose you would say the new combustibility of the world it was extraordinary to my shame I hadn't really heard much about the book so I looked it up and I looked up our review of it in the TLS actually uh, Jenny Aaron Smith uh, reviewed it for us and she gives it a very a very detailed very positive review and at one point she says fire weather is a visceral charged and surprisingly human narrative of climate disaster yes yes exactly because I mean it took him seven years to write and you know what he did really was was head up to this extraordinarily remote part uh, of Canada and he just talked to people about what it was like when 90,000 of them were evacuated in a single afternoon as this forest fire, this boreal fire, jumped over the river and essentially just was a fire of such incredible power and force and size and speed that it was creating its own weather systems. It was creating hurricanes and hail and it was just extraordinary terrifying took a year for them to put it out I mean that in itself is a year to put it out yes it was not declared fully extinguished for over a year which is kind of mind-boggling isn't it 
it is. Gosh, yeah. And then there were the other literary news was was very sad news was that A.S. Byatt died, wasn't it? Yes, very sad indeed. And a great novel writing hero of mine, actually. I don't know about you, Lucy, but I, I absolutely love her novels. And for me, no greater achievement in her work than the Frederica Potter Quartet. Oh, yes, I love those. Which I, I absolutely those. I always forget adore. about those. I know. They're so brilliant. Talk about yeah. due for a reread, but also really wonderful short story writer. That's what I was going to say. Possession, you know, amazing. Yeah. The Frederica novels are wonderful. And, and her short stories, I'm a real fan of her short stories. She can do kind of fable, fairy tale. Fairy tale sounds a bit too soft, but you know what I mean. She does really brilliant sort of metamorphosis type short stories as well, I think. Yeah, yes, agreed. So, yeah, much to revisit. And, and we're always setting ourselves rereading projects, aren't we? And perhaps we shall do that. I'll take mm. the novels, you take the short stories. Or okay. yep. we could yep. we could swap Absolutely. around too. I've also been writing a bit in this week's paper. Sorry, this you is all have. about me. Writing a, I have to say, writing a, a wonderful piece, which we have flagged but not actually mentioned, uh, writing about Hilary Mantel because we, we got some of the audio from your evening, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago? Yes, that's right. And I've written a piece about this book of non-fiction, collected non-fiction, which just so many different aspects of her talents uh obviously there's a lot about the writing of her Tudor novels her Thomas Cromwell novels but also her film reviews and her little strange occasional pieces about for example perfumes and and all sorts of bits and pieces about the Jennings novels I mean Wonderful, wonderful book mm. so mm. I think I might lie down in a darkened room now but not before we've had this week's podcast Lucy in which Mary Flannery takes us deep into the surprising world of everyday medieval magic. And Jean Wilson on Anne Boleyn, the woman who would be queen, whatever it cost. Now, might your view of the Middle Ages be that it was a simpler, more credulous time, full of naive folk who believed things that seem to us today to be a lot of old nonsense? It's quite a common notion. The funny side of it is found in things like Monty Python and the Holy Grail but it's one which exasperates historians of the period. And what could be more credulous and medieval than widespread belief in and use of magic? Well, it turns out it's not so simple. But luckily, we have Mary Flannery, who has written about it in this week's TLS, to help put us right. Welcome, Mary. Thanks for having me back, Lucy. Oh, it's, a, it's always a pleasure. Last time I seem to remember we had a lot of fun with the wife of Bath. <laughs> Yes, it's easy to have fun with her. Sometimes too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> she crops up again in this piece, Mary. She does. I, I'm delighted to say, and I'm sure we will touch on her. <laughs> I'm sure we will. So, Mary, you're reviewing these two books in your piece, and they show that, as you put it, magic was merely one of many available means by which people could get things done. So what do you think was the medieval attitude towards magic? I think really what comes across so beautifully in both these books is that magic was a commodity and a tool. You know, it was something that could provoke wonder or fear, but really when you got right down to it, it was part of a tool set that people would use to navigate their daily lives, solve problems, cure illnesses, uh, find lost items. That's also something it was frequently used for. And I think what really came across so well was just the kind of everyday nature of it. It's kind of a quotidian thing. In fact, um, as Stanmore puts it, I think, 
it was something that was so quotidian that it wasn't sometimes deemed worthy of mentioning at all. Brilliant. So if you if you sort of fixed something or something got better, you wouldn't even mention it. Be like, oh, yeah, I, I magicked it better. That's yeah. No, it was sort of, you know, not as sensational as you might think. You know, oh, I went and consulted a cunning woman. You know, perhaps there'd be some people who might look askance at that, you know, partly because you didn't always know whether the practitioners of magic were trustworthy. But it wouldn't necessarily provoke the kind of astonishment or mockery that something like that might today. Actually, while I was writing this review, a friend of mine happened in conversation to ask me at one point, do you believe in astrology? And what I remember was just the expression on her face. It was clearly there's some hesitation, a sense that she was asking a question that perhaps she might be embarrassed to ask because mm. it's, the, it's, a, it's a kind of question about, you know, yeah, what are you willing to believe? Well, this is something I was going to ask it later when we'd gone through medieval times, but let's jump. It's just, this is something that really <laughs> struck me when I was um, thinking about it. You, as you say at the beginning, yes, that we've got, we've got this kind of commonly held idea that there were kind of simple folk who believed anything, but we believe in, I mean, we, you know, collectively manifesting and asking the universe and psychics and time defying potions that you put on your face, which reverse aging. Mm. These practices don't feel that far away, do they really? No, they really don't. Um, and it's amazing what we put our faith in these days, right? I mean, at the moment, I'm speaking to you across a Wi-Fi connection. I have no idea how that's working, <laughs> you know, or there's sometimes when uh, you might think about things like old fashioned televisions when they weren't working, people might thump them or yell at them enough. That's something definitely some members of my family have done in the past. And there's a sort of belief that if you just do things a certain way, or if you kind of, you know, use, make use of certain tools, you will get an outcome that is more than you might be able to achieve just by any ordinary means. Oh, a million times. I mean, I'm sure lots of people don't think that they are superstitious and yet do all sorts of things mm -hmm. that, that would actually suggest that they are. I will say, Lucy, I do think it's a stretch to put retinol and Hyaluronic acid on the same. Exactly. You, you do a no, bit. We're back science. into the, the wife of Bath and her soap, as uh, listeners of the of, of the podcast previously will know. But you know, I know what you mean. There is a bit of science to it, but maybe it's what we're saying. The science the claims of it are magic. Claims of it as mm. magic. You're quite right. But are we also saying that there is some science to things that we would simply think from eras before? were regarded as magic, but actually they were a kind of common sense or practical wisdom. Mm, no, absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of the things that you get to explain when you're talking to people about the Middle Ages and they don't happen to be as immersed in it as you are. And one of the, the things, the points that I like to make is that there is a logic. You know, these kinds of beliefs or practices aren't just coming out of nowhere. They're actually built on very clear ideas about how the world works, how nature works. For instance, certain stones are believed to have key properties that enable them to perhaps take away pain or solve certain kinds of problems. So that's not, you know, it's not so outlandish when you realize that this is the way that they think that these materials work. It's a proper kind of logic at work. It's because you've seen something, actually. You have seen a cause and effect. Yeah, absolutely. In some instances. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so this is the reason why, for instance, when women might be giving birth, 
They would have potentially a birth girdle, which would be a piece of parchment wrapped around their waists, and it would have charms inscribed on it, or prayers. And it was believed that this was something, a tool that they could use to ensure the safe delivery of their, of their children. Is it too much information now to say that I have been given by somebody in my circle a magnet that you put in your knickers to ease the symptoms of menopause? I mean, is you that know, too much? Is that all too much? Too late, oh, no, though. No. <laughs> I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow has jade eggs, so really, I think that's it's absolutely fine. I don't know what polarity of myself I'm supposed to be reversing. <laughs> and in fact, I didn't, you know, listeners, I didn't do it. I was going to okay. say, do you find yourself drawn to the fridge and stuff? I did not do it. And in fact, I did then repurpose the magnet for something else. But anyway, I think this is all, you know, so I'm not throwing away a perfectly good magnet that might be useful. Anyway, this is this is far from, from serious medieval studies that we're going now. I'm so sorry, as you were. <laughs> Let's let's get back to practical uses, which in a way is where you were, Alex. Um, they were, but as you were saying, it was quite, it was quite sort of everyday and, and practical in the sense like there were different sorts of magicians, weren't there? And they used different tools, some of which were more gruesome and, and difficult to explain than others. Yes, absolutely. I mean, what was quite striking in Stanmore's book was the fact that she discovered over this massive survey of medieval documents that you know, the people who were practicing magic weren't always the people you'd expect. So you would have both men and women, in fact, more men than you would have women. And then I think for me, the most kind of interesting observation that she made was that many of the men who were practicing magic were working within the church. They were members of the clergy. You know, they might be a rector of a certain parish, but on the side, they have this other kind of business. You know, they are cunning men who make use of magic uh, within their parish in a very different way. And then it tended also to be um, men who were more likely to practice bookish magic, as you might say. I mean, this makes some sort of sense when you think about rates of literacy distributed across gender, but men were more likely to be making use of, you know, books, incantations, probably some Latin texts. Women were more likely to be practicing magic that might, let's say, have domestic uses. They might rely on tools and certain items around the home as opposed to, you know, book lore. Mm -hmm. They had different jobs, didn't they? Some of them would find things and some of them would find treasure, which is which is handy. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Works. Yeah. No, they were real specialists. Yeah. I think that was that. Yeah. Did you work out what the use of the human limb was? You know, I really didn't. But I have to say that I, I did spend some time looking up from the book and, tr you know, trying not to imagine too much what limb was being used. Or, this is or incredible. It it's absolutely yeah. incredible moment, isn't it? Yeah, it really, really is. But then, you know, and then, of course, you, you think about that for a bit. But if you're a medievalist, then your mind goes to other limb use in the Middle Ages. You think of something like reliquaries, for example. You know, even today, you go into churches around the world and you can find that they will have very often beautifully displayed um, holy relics, which are very often parts of bodies, um, you know, saints' bodies. And so you think about the fact that there, these kinds of items were thought to have a kind of inherent power, and all of a sudden the limb is still troubling, but at least you sort of say, okay, I see that that, that might be connected to a bigger logic at work. <laughs> 
in this case, it's it's a necromancer, isn't it? Who's used a human limb. We're not sure which one. As mm. you report to find 40 shillings on behalf of a client. Mm-hmm. Now, I must say, possibly because in your review, that is recounted quite near the mention of divination. So I must say, I just assumed it, it was sort of holding a limb and seeing if it moved. Which you know, mm. mm. yeah. in any kind of way, which I know sounds very gruesome, but that's honestly what I thought it probably was. But we don't entirely know, do we? No, and that's that's precisely the point. You know, we have these little fragments, right? The, the details that leap out, like the use of a human limb to find these, you know, these shillings. And yet we don't always have the instruction manual that goes with it. And we don't even sometimes hear about the results of the practice. It's just kind of these little mentions of it. Uh, but it's true that I have to say my mind went there too. I sort of thought perhaps like a, a needle in a compass moving mm. from one place to another. Oh, heavens, we're back to knicker magnets. Yeah, I'm so we're back sorry. to <laughs> I'm so sorry. But moving just, swiftly on. Well, yes. Actually, I'm going to move swiftly back if I might, because I was so interested, not back to the magnets, don't worry. I was so interested in what you were saying about the religious men. So this was not seen as in any sense kind of heretical. You might have somebody is, who is performing some kind of holy office and, you know, using the Bible and and entirely within the uh, organized religion as it was then. But then they would do something magical and that simply wouldn't be seen as contradictory. Hmm. I think it depends on whose perspective you're talking about, because I think, you know, you could definitely argue that the sort of higher ups in the church would not look kindly on that kind of practice, especially because it was often done for profit. But what is striking is that this seems to have been a a non-controversial enough practice that it was possible to do within a parish. So, you, you know, you might see members of your congregation about and they might come to consult you perhaps on the state of their souls, or perhaps on where a, you know, wonderful bit of family treasure has wandered off to. And so what's interesting is that that kind of activity, these different kinds of activity weren't necessarily seen as mutually exclusive in the eyes of the communities around. Mm. And presumably some of them were practicing, maybe especially the women, I don't know, what we would now consider to be medicine. Mm, no, absolutely. And this is where things like, uh, you know, the, the sort of practices surrounding childbirth uh, get really interesting because um, up to the really later part of the Middle Ages, it was predominantly women who were responsible for looking after women's reproductive health and particularly during childbirth. Uh, women were the ones who would be, you know, in the birthing chamber uh, with the mother in labor. And women would pass the knowledge uh, surrounding things like childbirth uh, from one generation to another, from one woman to another, usually orally. And so, yes, this is a case where we see women who might be using things like charms inscribed on a birthing girdle or certain kinds of stones or certain kinds of other substances with medical applications. Um, This is definitely one context in which we would see that happening. Mm. The book that we've been talking about there is by Tabitha Stanmore, and she looked at the actual practices, didn't she? She went through lots and lots of practices to analyze how sort of everyday it was. Yeah, absolutely. And she really, she covers, um, you know, a few centuries. It's What's interesting about her book is that 
it sort of spans the usual divide between the Middle Ages and the early modern period, which is extremely useful because, of course, real life doesn't work that way uh, most of the time. You know, we might still talk about, okay, we're in the, you know, the 90s or the 80s, you know, as having an identity. But, you know, in terms of a, a sort of rift between these two periods, um, it's one that has very often kind of divided scholars into one camp or another. And so what's so useful about her book is that she does look at a tremendous amount of documentary evidence across this period, as well as literary evidence. And this is quite useful, not necessarily in terms of giving us a sense of how magic was actually practiced, but it gives us a sense of how the practice of magic was viewed. You know, how were the practitioners of magic viewed? How were the clients viewed? Um, and so this is something that she considers over a span of a few hundred years from, you know, the late 14th century through to, I think, the uh, the end of the 16th century. Mm -hmm. And so let's say it was an everyday sort of thing, as you say. When did people start to become afraid and suspicious and, and kind of hunting them down and things? Well, that's so that's what's interesting. I think it's fair to say that there is a fear. There are suspicions. There are fears about the practice of witchcraft within communities, but it doesn't really build to the kind of hysteria that we associate with, you know, Salem or, you know, the witch trials until sometime in the 16th century. And you start to see um, in the middle of the century certain acts against conjuration passed, which are clearly singling out witchcraft or the practice of magic as something that is dangerous and potentially threatening to the sort of order, to civil and social order. And so that's really when the shift takes place. But you do still, of course, see, uh, see magic criminalized um, for various reasons earlier. You know, in the middle of the 15th century, Eleanor Cobham, the wife of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, who's the protector of the realm, you know, when Henry VI is a child, she is actually accused of witchcraft um, because uh, she's accused of trying to figure out when the young king was going to die. Because, of course, she and her husband would have then been in line to succeed, you know, to the throne. And so you do see that uh, reported and written about uh, in really strong terms at this point. You know, that was a major, major controversy. And although she ended up uh, getting off relatively lightly, the witch in question was burnt at the end of the proceedings. Do you get the sense when you think about those outcrops of criminalization that then built into this larger movement, um, like, as you say, Salem, that it was really less of a distrust in magic than a way to control people who thought that they could live outside authority, that it was a sort of authoritarian act. And of course, particularly perhaps against women who were frightening for other reasons and had to be kept in line for other reasons. Mm, no, absolutely, Alex. I think that's a wonderful point. Um, you know, it, it sort of comes to be the case that accusations of practicing witchcraft or magic of one kind or another can be used to sort of ostracize certain potentially troublesome <laughs> members of the a particular community um, or people who might be seen as either a threat to power or as, you know, people who might potentially disrupt the order uh, and indeed potentially the hierarchy that is in place. And so it's really at this point, I think, when we see that accusations of witchcraft and magic are being weaponized, you might say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And the other book that you talk about in your piece by Catherine Storm Hindley, so that's a book about charms, isn't it, mm. and about how they're spoken and written. And does that mean that much of the power that people felt was coming from magic was, was through words? Is that right? Well, in this case, they definitely were. But what's fascinating um, about Hindley's book is that she really unpacks all the very different ways in which words were believed to have magical power. You know, so you could, they might be efficacious uh, or magical because of the way that they were spoken or the way that they were written. Um, in some cases, you might have to write words down and then consume them. Um, so in some cases, you might be using Latin. In some cases, you might be using words that don't have any obvious meaning. And so we really get this wonderful sense of variety uh, in terms of how words worked, magically speaking, in the Middle Ages, or were believed to work, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's very interesting because, as you you say, that there it's quite specific and precise. It's not someone waving their hands and going bloody bloody blah. It's people copying things down, and if there's a you know, and they have to get corrected if there's a problem and there's a proper a form of it. Is that right? Mm, no, absolutely. Yeah, there's a wonderful example that Hindley mentions, uh, a case in which a scribe is copying down the sort of instructions for a charm, and he's copying them down in English, but then he gets to the bit where the sort of the charm itself, the sort of powerful words are going to be written down, and he accidentally keeps writing in English. And so what we see is that he actually goes back and corrects it and writes them down in French. So clearly the language matters in that case. Um, and so it's really interesting to see this material evidence of just how precise people were about how charms were recorded, transmitted and used. And used sometimes in ways that, again, we're going back to kind of things that we believe in modern life that perhaps we shouldn't, but almost like sort of homeopathy or something, some that you might dissolve the words. You might dissolve the paper itself in water and then drink the water, which sounds mm. disgusting. No, is it? That makes, <laughs> you take in the power of the words. I would, I, I, you know, I would buy Lucy, that. Lucy, you don't believe in face I cream. Don't mean, no. I don't mean Lucy's got the logic of it. I think Lucy's, she's got it. Yeah. <laughs> That's very okay. kind. <laughs> and you make a point towards the end of your piece, kind of summing it up, which is so interesting. And you say that maybe instead of thinking about magic in those times as a sort of outlandish or amazing thing, and from our perspective and going, oh, look how weird they were to believe in that, we should just think of how ordinary it was. And if we're thinking, say, of Merlin, that, you know, rather than thinking of a great enchanter, we just think he's someone else who's on King Arthur's kind of payroll. He's got his his falconer and, you know, the guy who looks after mm. the hounds and he's got his magician and his cook, mm. and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's true that it does change things once you, once you start to think about a figure like Merlin in those terms, right? Uh, when you think of him as this kind of mystical figure who just kind of pops up and makes things happen, uh, that sort of, okay, there's, that's the kind of marvelous element to it. But then once you start to think of him as someone who is just kind of a part of Arthur's household, you know, on retainer, in fact, um, then that starts to kind of get a, a little bit closer to, I think, the everyday picture that both these books uh, paint. Once you start to think of him, in fact, as an employee, then there's something of the marvelous uh, and as well as the sense of kind of gullibility that we might associate with people working with practitioners of magic, uh, it really changes once you think of him in those terms. 
I was very interested and again I'm going to have my Hilary Mantel hat on here <laughs> uh, because as we were saying in the earlier when we were chatting Lucy I, I reviewed her non-fiction recently um, and that includes a review wonderful book review of course of Keith Thomas's Religion and the Decline of Magic from 1971 and you, you make the point in this review that you think these books both of these books may change the way that we think about magic in the medieval world. And I was wondering what that sort of step change was, because it's not that people haven't written about it mm. with great knowledge and discernment and ingenuity previously, mm. as Keith Thomas is one of them. What do you feel is that is the kind of step change here? I think that one of the real shifts that we see here is that both books treat magic as something that is at work everywhere within medieval communities. Um, I think most scholarship, uh, and actually both, both books, I think, do a good job of pointing this out, but most earlier scholarship concerning medieval magic, um, first of all, still treats it as a kind of um, outlandish, fantastical subject. And I think even uh, within academia, you might say that magic is treated as something of an outlandish subject to study. And so what both of these books do is by looking at all these different kinds of contexts, these different documents, and unearthing all the sort of everyday ways in which magic might be used in the, in the medieval world, they really take us a step closer to seeing magic in terms of its efficacy as a kind of tool, um, as a cure, as something that might be bought and sold. And I think that the real shift that these books both have a potential to bring about is in terms of how we then view the Middle Ages themselves. Uh, I think that once we start to think of medieval people as canny, shrewd users and practitioners of magic, then we may be closer to setting aside that picture of the Middle Ages as this, you know, this backwards period when people were all just much more gullible than we are today. Magic is everywhere. Let's remember that uh, if we can this week. Mary, thank you so much for joining us and talking us through this. Thank you for having me back. Still to come on the show, Jean Wilson on the hunt for the real Anne Boleyn. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Selling a little? Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. This week, the BBC announced that they were about to start filming The Mirror and the Light, the adaptation of the final part of Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall trilogy. And it appears that our appetite for all things Tudor is undimmed. At the heart of so much of this story is the mysterious figure of Anne Boleyn. And this week's TLS features a review of a new book about her, Hunting the Falcon, by John Guy and Julia Fox. Jean Wilson has written the review and we're delighted that she joins us now. Welcome, Jean. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it was such an interesting piece, and even the title of the book suggests the search for something elusive. Is that the sense that we we know everything and nothing about Anne Boleyn? Is that accurate? I think that's an accurate picture of the state of scholarship at the moment. Julia Fox and John Guy have been absolutely scrupulous in displaying the very latest scholarship fully on the subject of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn's extraordinary courtship and marriage. But at the end, for all their efforts, there is this enigma at the centre, and it's Anne. We really, really have very little sense, I think, of what was motivating her, because it is such a an odd series of events she held out for so long she's not that well born she doesn't have that much money she might well have expected to settle down with a mid-ranking richish gentleman in the way her sister who had also been Henry's mistress did but she wouldn't follow her sister's path she refused to be Henry's mistress And she held out to be queen. And that's an extraordinary thing to do for a not very well born, not terribly rich, no longer by the time she marries Henry, terribly young woman at this date. And the book makes an interesting argument that her upbringing in European courts in the Netherlandish court and in later, much for a much greater time in the French court, exposed her to courts in which women had power, they had agency. And she wanted, she saw this as something she could get. Now, the thing she seems to have left out, and I'm not sure that the book brings it out 
sufficiently, although it's there, is that the women whom she served in Europe were royal women. They were extremely powerful in their own right. And she simply wasn't a royal woman. She was the, the highest she got before she became queen was lady-in-waiting to Catherine of Aragon. So what gave her the idea that she could be queen and also what gave her the idea that it was worth being queen? Yes, that's such an interesting idea that you pursue something. You know, what is the, the most powerful thing that you can be? Well, it would be to be queen. But do you want it just for itself or do you want it in order to make something happen? Does the book go into that? What, what were her ultimate motivations in pursuing the queenship and Henry? It's not their fault. But in the end, we don't know. She's not, as far as we can see, an ardent reformer. She's not dedicated as a Protestant heroine. It looks as though, like Henry himself and many of the people in his court, who were sympathetic to reform of the church, she's not seeing herself as Anglican or, or Protestant in any way. She's simply reformist Catholic, interested in new ideas, but uh, certainly doesn't seem to want to repudiate Catholicism. Indeed, there's some thought at the end she may, uh, she may have hoped she could um, sort of retire from court and um, enter a convent rather than being executed. She probably wanted to advance her family. Loyalty at this date may have been principally to your family rather than to your country or even to your monarch. She does seem to have been quite greedy about getting stuff. There's a nice bit that they don't quote in the book, but where George Cavendish, who was um, very hostile to her because he was much attached to Wolsey, says that as soon as she becomes the, the king's favourite, she began to look very hot and stout, having all manner of jewels or rich apparel that might be gotten with money. And once she becomes queen, she really does spend money on lavish, extraordinarily lavish stuff, furnishings and clothes and jewels, etc. Well, you say you say in the in the piece, don't you? She spent like a lottery winner. She just yeah. sort of was <laughs> just which I I loved. She just thought, okay, I've got it and I'm gonna get what I want now. Yeah. Cloth of gold cradles, that cradle hangings of the baby. I mean extraordinarily impractical. It's the details like that. And as you say, the fact that we don't really know her motives that make her feel, I mean, maybe that's why she's so she's so enigmatic to us. They make her feel like a real person. Um, because as and as you say, she she wasn't particularly nice. I mean, she wasn't it wasn't in the business of being nice, and it wasn't a very nice environment, was it? But she was certainly she was driven and clever and sort of passionate and clearly very effective. Yes, I, she was crowned. She's the only one of the his queens who is crowned. She is aiming for extraordinary power. I I think she is nastier than she needs to be. 
Right. <laughs> this is uh, <laughs> it's not just not nice. It's kind of there's a bit of active. I mean, when the the episode where she what is it tells someone to box Princess Mary's ear, give her a clout like the bastard she is. I mean, that's really horrid. Mm. Mm. And you you really make the point that that this has a a huge effect, as it would on Mary, who has seen her own mother ousted in the most horrible way, who has now got this new stepmother of some kind. And then when she later becomes queen, there's even the suggestion that this her idea for revenge is somehow kind of against Protestantism, which is how it comes out, is, is partly motivated by what's happened to her at Anne's hands. Yes, I think there is a case to be made for that. The book is fascinating on the upbringing, for instance, of, of Henry VIII, the fact that he's a, a second son um, that he loses his much-loved mother in her late 30s unexpectedly. She died in childbirth. Uh, they don't go into Princess Mary as much, but the balance of the book, w- with its emphasis on um, the influence of childhood and of, the, of events on what happens later, I think does invite us to think, well, if Anne hadn't been quite so horrible to Princess Mary, perhaps Princess Mary wouldn't have been quite so horrible to Protestants, because she must have seen Cranmer, whom she goes after, uh, as one of the agents of Anne Boleyn in what happened to uh, Catherine of Aragon. And of course, Catherine of Aragon was an extraordinarily nice woman. Uh, All the testimony about her says that she was uh, charitable and religious and worthy and she's replaced by and of course she was a princess of Spain um, she's replaced by this woman who comes from not too far back from a rich merchant background um, whose father is an extremely accomplished diplomat and it's as though and sort of comes over as on the make in a rather nasty way and and then in uh, is rather nasty in the way she makes use of her power when she gets it although of course she um totally um miscalculates is that how it really happened is that is that how you see it and and indeed how the book sees it that she she in a sense kind of overplayed her hand she didn't get to grips with the forces that were going to mass against her. And I suppose also the the change in the balances of power, these shifting alliances, these different ways that um, alliances with other countries wanted to be made by Thomas Cromwell, for example. Did she just not see the full picture? I think she didn't see the full picture. She is passionately Francophile, which Henry himself was, but in the great ongoing European power struggle between the Habsburgs and the French with for effectively for control of the channel, the French lose out. Um, and Chapuis, the um, imperial ambassador, and Cromwell see, who are pragmatic, um, see that it is much more in England's interest to back the Habsburgs, the Spain and the Netherlands and Germany. And 
It's as though Anne doesn't see that. Inevitably, she is breeding late because she held out against Henry for so long. She is old when she has her first child. She then has miscarriages. And the book is extremely good in pointing out that probably Henry's wives uh, reproductive failures are nothing to do with them. It suggests that it may be Henry himself, um, that he's got some sort of, they don't say recess incompatibility, but some sort of parallel condition, which means that, that it is difficult for women to bear his children. And Anne has a miscarriage and Henry falls off his horse mm. and has a very serious injury. And it's as though that also isn't quite quite factored in um so she doesn't factor in no one would factor in you don't know we now have an appreciation of the impact of head injuries that they certainly didn't in the 16th century Mm. and it does seem that even if she had seen it coming you know henry suddenly having intimations of mortality and her not having a son and then if you've got cromwell and chaprice who have kind of ranged against you and have decided something do you think there is anything that she could have done? I mean, however resourceful and clever she was. Probably not. I mean, she might have tried just doing a Queen Esther from the Bible, uh, going to the king and repenting loudly all over the place. But I don't think that she is politically inconvenient. She hasn't produced a male heir. He knows he needs a male heir. Henry, after all, is the product of, he's the figure, I mean, it was Arthur before him, who reconciles the houses of York and Lancaster. He's the answer to pretty well 100 years of intermittent civil war. Um, He has to have a male heir. Turned out he didn't have to have a male heir. But uh, he didn't know that. So she's failed because she hasn't produced a boy. She's miscarried, which is a huge mistake on her part. <laughs> no, not something she could help. No, no, of course not, poor thing. She is this funny mix, isn't she, of, as you say, there's, a, you know, at some points you feel desperately sorry for her because she's completely enmeshed and in a way powerless. And then in a way she goes after power as much as she can and uses it to her own advantage. And as you say, doesn't really mind who she kind of, lays waste to she's she's this this funny mix of sort of vulnerability and strength I was interested in the piece where you say that the uh the authors suggest that she really was in love with Henry Percy yeah and because Wolseley sort of put an end to that that's why she was after him yes and that that comes from um George Cavendish's life of Cardinal Wolsey that um Wolsey basically told Henry Percy who was ended up as a Northampton Thumberland, as you you know, um, that Anne wasn't good enough for him. Um, He needed to marry someone who was better born and probably better with um, huge tracts of land, which Anne didn't have. And Wolsey put a stop to the marriage. And there's no doubt, I think, that Henry Percy, there was an argument that they had, in fact, married, that there's a pre-contract. Percy denies this, as does Anne, but there is this really significant moment when Percy is one of the judges at her trial, and after the sentence, he faints. Mm. It's extraordinary. If you wrote it, nobody would believe it, would they? No. (laughs) 
it's very chilling, obviously, from from our perspective in history. But I wonder how chilling it was at the time to see Anne and other of Henry's wives really to be their lives hung in the balance because of their reproductive systems, as well as all the diplomatic to's and fro's. It's it's really quite horrifying, isn't it? Yes. And the one who was successful in producing the heir, the male heir, of course, died of postpartum, either infection or hemorrhage, probably infection. Jane Seymour produces the heir and dies. Mm. Henry isn't happy with Anne of Cleves, who is the German North European imperial alliance that Cromwell's been pushing for. Poor Catherine Howard, who was undoubtedly very silly, but was also extremely young. We don't really think about that much. Catherine Parr, we know a little bit about because she's the one who survived. But we are so focused on Anne, I think, because she's Elizabeth's mother. Mm. That's as much an accident as anything else that happens. If Henry hadn't been fixed on a male heir, he'd have been happy with Princess Mary, who was an intelligent girl who could very well have ruled. And did. She didn't rule very well. She ruled badly, but she did rule. Uh, If Edward hadn't been sickly and died if Elizabeth hadn't been so successful. We wouldn't care about Anne. She'd just be one of the list. As it is, we almost lose sight of Catherine of Aragon, to whom he was married for longer than anyone else. And that was a love match, or certainly on his part. He was devoted to her. Mm. Alex has written a piece about um, Hilary Mantel in the TLS this week, lovely piece about her her last collection of essays. And I was just wondering, because I was thinking as, as someone who's not a historian, I'm afraid I do see a lot of this through the eyes of Hilary Mantel. I mean, I kind of take it, you know, I kind of believe what I'm reading Wolf Hall. Though I'm aware that not all historians agree with that. But do you think that that, that, that has also brought her and kept her into the sort of public eye? I'm not sure. I mean, I have a terrible confession to make. I have never been able to get on with Hilary Mantel's. Really? You haven't read it? I've tried. I've tried. I can't. Well, it's not, not everyone. No, not everyone does. I know people who've tried it three times and then just then you go, well, that's fine. It's not for everyone. Yeah. Anne is a an important figure before Hilary Mantel. Yes. Yeah. Pictures in, you know, kind of a thousand days, the, the big film. She is this. She is a romantic figure. She holds out for so long. She gets to be queen. She gives birth to Elizabeth within three years. Her head's cut off. But we do always see the past through a convenient glass provided by the present. And Hilary Mantel has done this for our generation. She, after all, the, the bits I've read, she makes Thomas Cromwell sympathetic. Well, that's new. 
I know. Well, that's the trouble. <laughs> yes. That's what I mean. As a as a as a kind of literary, not very you know, not very knowledgeable about history, I was just like, oh, Cromwell was great. And then you talk well, to historians, and they go, no, no, I really. I'm not. going to have to come in here and and sort of yes, do I would, stop me I talking for, for any minute attempt to speak on Hilary Mantel's behalf, of course. But I suppose, I mean, apart from the fact that she spent so many years with the sources with the historical sources but I think that if you could try to sum up what she was trying to do it was to give an incredibly sort of detailed account of the impression that she got from trying to live with that history of what these people were like and how fast it all moved and how those alliance shifted and obviously she tried to give them interior lives and the minute that you do that, you create sympathy between them and a reader because you're you're in someone's head, aren't you? But yes, it's certainly, of course, certainly true that Anne Boleyn existed in the public imagination prior to Hilary Mantel. But I was really interested in a point that you make uh, and have made here, Jean, in, in the review, is that, you know, it, it is partly to do with her influence, which we may not quite know quite not recognize how much influence Anne had on the later queenship of her daughter Elizabeth uh, and you make that point that Elizabeth actually adopted a lot of her mother's I think you say it's imagery in her reign I was very interested about that by that yes she takes over the, the, and they do bring this out extremely well uh, they make you go round any building she's associated Anne is associated with looking for the falcons and of course, Elizabeth used the falcon to a certain extent, but also the armillary sphere. And the armillary sphere is key to Elizabeth. It's quite mysterious as a symbol. Um, I've argued that it's um, to do with Urania, the muse of heavenly poetry, but for Elizabeth. But then you find that Anne uses it. So perhaps Elizabeth is using it simply because it's her mother's. Mm. that I wasted a whole article trying to work out what it was. <laughs> you do read this story, the overview of it, and you think of all these people with their mothers who are killed or who die in childbirth, or, and you think, God, I, I'm not surprised if they were all absolutely traumatised and desensitised to sort of pain and loss. I may be projecting a, a tremendous kind of psychological cast on this, but it seems that everybody was dealing with the most horrific things all the time. Yes, you've only got to look, and ju just as a thing that's happening in the Renaissance, if you look at the number of children women had and the number of adults, the number of those children who grew to adulthood, it's horrendous. We say, you know, the worst thing that could happen to you is the, the death of a child. And this is happening to them time and time and time again. Yes. And you make that point that Henry grows up. He's the only surviving son of his mother, isn't he? And, you know, he adored her. She dies very suddenly. And if, you know, kingship is the highest, I mean, no wonder he had this sense of exceptionalism. Yes, well, his his elder brother, Arthur, Prince of Wales, who, of course, was married to Catherine of Aragon first, um, is brought up in his own Prince of Wales household. Henry stays with his mother. Again, they bring this out rather well. It's, it's 
probably rather unusual for him not to have his own household. But as soon as his mother dies and then his elder brother, then he's taken over by his father, who is uh, Henry VII doesn't seem, I mean, although Henry VII was clearly devoted to um, Elizabeth of York, he doesn't seem to have been a terribly user-friendly person. And uh, Henry is devoted to his mother, and they argue that, uh, the, the authors argue, that he is looking to replace that relationship for his whole life. And of course, mm. Catherine fulfilled that because she was older than him. Mm. Mm. Gosh, it's, 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 it's a tangled web, which obviously <laughs> brings me to the point that, of course, it continues to be fascinating to us. It is just objectively fascinating, isn't it? And you're very impressed with this book, despite it's sort of, you know, the bits that you disagree with here and there and the things where you think they have it slightly wrong. But, but overall, you're very impressed with the book, I think. I think it is scrupulous. I think it is, it's a lovely read. It's well-written. It's it's clear. It has um, nice sort of family trees. It has a helpful list of who people were or who the people who crop up most often were. It's very good for someone who really wants to know what happened and who these people were. And it's beautifully clearly done. Jean, that was so fascinating. Thank you very much for diving into the seething world of the Tudors and of Henry and Anne with us. We really appreciate uh, you coming to talk to us today. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Mary C. Flannery and Jean Wilson. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark. Goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.